Hi guys, it's Josh Rubin here with Douglas Elliman in New York with our latest episode of the Rubin Special with my good friend Lisa Chinati of Chinati Realty in the greater Boston suburbs. Lisa, how's it going up there today? Uh, it's fantastic. It's 80 and sunny. It couldn't be better. 80 and sunny in the outskirts of Boston. Who would have thought? That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> New England, you never know what you get. <laughs> so tell us, what's going on with the governor up there with the stay-at-home order and the quarantine and uh, how's it affecting your business? Um, well, so we are in phase one of reopening. We just started reopening last week. Um, we are essential. So we've been lucky. We've been kind of able to continue showing and selling and doing all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think people are just starting to get back to work, but I think one of the crazy things is that our real estate market is stronger now than it was at the same day last year. Our showing activity is actually doubled from same day last year, which is fascinating. So you're saying that your business is actually busier at this point right now than it was at the same point last year. Uh, yeah, we're up probably 20% over what we were at this same time last year, year to date. So we had a really strong Q1 coming into this. We're going to have a weaker Q2, but it's offset by the really strong Q1 that we had. And then the showing activity is insane. We had um, a property in a town, uh, one town over, two towns over. And in four days, it ended up with 41 offers. Um, what? Yeah. It's wow. Insane. Was that your listing or was that just anecdotal evidence of the strength? Uh, it was not our listing. Our, we had one with 27 offers two weeks ago. So well, 27, just, isn't, 27 isn't bad. You know, I, I remember I had a listing a number of years ago where, uh, long story short, the seller had uh, for estate planning purposes, had an appraisal done by an uh, independent appraiser before calling me and selling the property. And so they had a price in mind, uh, which was $350,000. It was a very small one bedroom. This is about 15 years ago in the West Village. And uh, they had this price in mind. So I said, well, that seems low without even seeing the property. And I went and saw the property and I said, yeah, it's probably worth somewhere up 450. But if you want, we could set the, set the price at 350 which is the price that the appraiser had suggested. So we put it at three fifty, and one thing led to another. And we had sixty-eight offers. It was one of the most intense experiences of my professional career, and I vowed never to do that again. It's difficult to navigate, right? It's tough to. I think it's tough. It's tough to be a buyer, no doubt, and it's tough to be a buyer agent. Yes, but it's also difficult on the seller side. It's a big decision to make, right? And I think you get pulled in the emotional aspects of it. It's a lot to juggle and kind of not not overfunded to deliver bad news to the other in your case 67 yeah i mean is, is it really bad news i mean you just kind of let them know that this is a situation you weren't the highest offer should anything unexpected happen you know you'll revert but at the end of the day your job is to do the best job for the seller right absolutely yeah no doubt yeah, so that's that's great, and that's proof positive of what I've been saying to our friends and viewers and colleagues and clients the last few weeks is that when we come out of this, I think it's going to be a shot from the cannon right into the you know third to fourth late late into the third early fourth quarter when we see the election uh, come about, and then we're going to you know see what happens with the election. I think all attention uh, is going to go to that. What are your thoughts? I agree. Absolutely. I think the fact that rates are still staying as low as they're staying, I think across the country, I think we're still seeing that inventory, at least right now, is really low. 
um, buyer demand isn't going anywhere. And one of the things that we're talking about here with our team, and I think, um, you know, we are in the suburbs of Boston, right? We don't go quite into downtown Boston. And I think one of the advantages that we're going to be able to take advantage of, use that word twice, but um, as companies close, like my husband's company, they're working remote for the foreseeable future. And I think that that's very typical. Um, So I think it's going to force people to have some changes in their living situation, right? So folks that were living in smaller places that don't have a home office might need to buy a bigger home with a home office. Families with children who relied on public parks and playgrounds now want to have that playground in their backyard as opposed to not having that in their backyard. So I think that there's going to be some really great opportunities for home buyers and for sellers and also for agents, whether you're in the city or out of the city. I think that there's there's some great opportunity coming our way. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. We have people sort of focused on, you know, what's what's wrong with their current living situation and how to improve it. People have been really focused on um, sort of getting the ideal situation out of this. And now with today's low rates, they might just be able to do that. It, totally. Well, and I think as, you know, the commute, like for us, you know, if you were commuting to Boston, you always kind of wanted to stay within a certain radius, which kind of impacted the size of the home and the style of the home and, you know, budget. But you can take that same budget. And if you don't have to commute into downtown Boston anymore and can can truly work remote, whether it's full time or even part time, it's going to open up some of the outlying real estate markets that never really took off quite as much as those that were closer to Boston. Yeah, it's interesting with the remote work situation, people are now open to living further out uh, into the suburbs. And some people are even talking about moving entirely from the metropolitan areas to more affordable places where they can, you know, get more space. And, you know, I saw an article yesterday talking about people moving from Chicago to places like Texas. But, you know, of course, they're thinking that they're going to make, let's say you have somebody making, I'm just picking a number here, $180,000 working in Chicago as an analyst for X bank. And they're now able to work remote. And they're saying, well, if I'm able to work remote in perpetuity, I'll move to, you know, the farmlands or, you know, the, the, the Texas or wherever. And the company is saying, well, not so fast, because if you move there, then we're not going to be able to pay you $180,000. Instead, we'll be paying you, you know, X amount less. And so the people are saying, well, you know, I've gotten pretty accustomed to this posh lifestyle of mine, and I'm not so sure I want, you know, a reduced pay structure. Fair. Yeah. It, it, so many interesting things going on, isn't there? <laughs> Absolutely. So, Lisa, you run a team of how many in your brokerage now? Uh, we're probably hovering around 65 agents, uh, probably about 50 on the team and 15 that are not on the team. And then we have our staff as well, 10 to 12 members. Okay. And, uh, you know, how did you build a team uh, of that size in such a relatively short period of time? Um, Yeah, it's a really great question. So I think one of the biggest things for us has always been, um, you know, being able to understand the dynamics of what agents are looking for, right? One of the the biggest thing that we talk about with our staff here is that our agents are our first level customer, right? We've got to deliver an amazing experience to our agents and that enables uh, enables our agents to deliver an amazing experience to their clients. Um, And I think, well, you know me and my business fairly well, right? And culture is like one of the biggest things to us. Like we work hard, we sell a lot of homes, we're very successful, no doubt, 
but we have fun, right? There's no ego here. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, and it's a culture of support. And I think agents, I think they respect that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I think about when I think of Chinati Realty is I think culture. And I think about, you know, lead sources and, and accountability. And so what are the, some of the things that you, that you do to drive culture first? Well, so culture starts at the top, right? Like that's the kicker. Right? And I think that that's one of the things that team leaders and broker owners often take for granted, right? Like everything that, uh, that I'm asking my agents to do, I'm happy to do with them. I'm prospecting on the phone with them. I'm going on appointments. Heck, yesterday I spent out shadowing three listing appointments and I did a handful of showings with my agents, right? Because if I'm asking them to do it, I need to do it. But more than that, it's really important for me to stay um, in the mix of what's going on and how everything is changing in the environment. So that's definitely part of it. Um, I think the next part of it comes down to, you know, understanding that we're all human, right? And that we've got to be able to understand the basics of the stuff that's going on. Like we always talk about accountability and profitability, and we're talking about conversion rates and, you know, all of these different things that as business owners are important, no doubt, but it's also not we can't forget that these are people, right? And there's outside factors that are always in play. Like right now, schools are canceled, right? So we've got to be able to understand that a lot of our agents are juggling being teachers, being parents, being playmates for children who can't even have playdates anymore, right? And until we can support that as a company, we're not going to be able to support them as business people. Um, Before Corona, what did that look like for us? We had a daycare center in our office over the summer, right? For the same reason, right? So we, nine to five, Monday through Friday, you could bring your kids here. And we had staff members here to do activities and play games so that parents didn't feel like they were giving up on their children having a fun summer so that they could work, right? Um, Oh, so you actually had childcare built in for your team. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Right. And so, you knew if you were in a pinch and needed to go to a showing, you could bring your kids here. They would be just as safe as they were at home. And you knew that they were doing activities that didn't involve a computer screen. Right. Um, Right. And we believe like we all have core values. Right. And we live and die by our core values. Right. Supporting each other, innovating, thinking ahead and outside the box, not just with children, but all of the other facets, like we all wear 20 hats a day, right? They're, everybody has a different 20 hats. And we've yeah. got to understand that. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, here we have a, you know, a, a business which is owned by you, a woman. And, you know, you sort of built it from scratch. You've, you've had some challenging times. You've hit some headwinds, not the least of which is this most recent pandemic that we're all encountering. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're leading with heart. And, you know, and with empathy, not just for your customers and your clients, but also for your team members. And it seems like you're, you're putting them before anything. And, you know, integrating childcare is a, is a great reflection of, of who you are as a person, because, you know, you're thinking about, you know, family, children, and, uh, you know, supporting that, that sort of network first, which is really, you know, uh, amazing for someone to do 
um, you know, let alone a, a working mother. Um, so tell us a little bit about your, your sort of family dynamic. I know, you know, you're married and you have, you know, is it two daughters? Yeah. Yeah. I have two right. girls. They are, uh, 16 and my youngest will be 14 in a few days. So, yeah. And so, and so, you know, they're, they're obviously old enough to, to you know, sort of take care of themselves, but I'm sure that they still rely on you uh, to a, to a larger degree. Um, you know, what's that like leading this team of, you know, 60 plus people, agents, staff, et cetera. And then, you know, you and Steve have, have these two beautiful girls at home. You know, the fascinating thing is that they're my why, right? And I think that this is probably something that a lot of moms relate to or, you know, it, I went to school, got an education, had a career for a little bit of time um, after college and before I got married. And then after I got married and I had my first daughter, I left the workforce and um, it was really tough for me um, to be able to not work. I think some of us are, I'm wired. I have to be working and feel productive. Um, and so having two daughters in particular, it's been really important for me to help them understand that you can do it, right? You can go to school, get an education, focus on being the best version of yourself, be a mom and still be able to wear that kind of softer, more nurturing side at home. But kick ass in the office and prove that there's no limits, right? Like it's super powerful to realize that, you know, as a woman, there's nothing that's holding us back, right? You and I are on an equal playing field and I want my kids to be able to see that, right? And to see that it is possible to juggle it all. And I struggle, right? We all, I think anybody who says that they've got this perfect balance all the time is full of shit, right? There's times when I, you know, have full disclosure, I've missed the parent teacher conference because I forgot. Right. And there've been times when, you know, I've had to do some other things, but having this career has enabled me a lot of flexibility and grace that I wouldn't have had if I were employed in the workforce. Normally my daughter had, um, a very major surgery last year and was in the hospital for a week and out of school for about three months. And I was out of the office for about eight to 10 weeks. Wow. And the business kept going and still supported it, but I was able to be the mom that I needed to be during that time period. Yeah. And I'm sure that's in in great credit to the, you know, culture that you've uh, created and, you know, to the wonderful staff that you have surrounding you in order to, to support you and the team, not just, not just the admins and, and uh, you know, management, but also, you know, the agents themselves. hundred percent. hundred percent. I think that that's the cool thing about culture and teams is that it goes both ways. Right. So I know that they'll step in whenever I need them for personal, whether it's the personal stuff or whether it's, you know, some professional stuff or whatever, but they know it goes both ways, which is why, you know, I didn't have plans for Memorial day yesterday. So I'm happy to, take a couple buyers out on a showing so that one of the agents can have a much needed day off with their family. That's what it's all about. That's great. You know, that's something that we heard, we heard from uh, Mark Pattison out in uh, San Diego too, and the culture that he's created in terms of the support, you know, one of his agents was hurt in a mountain biking accident, called him from the hospital the night before and said, Hey, I have seven or eight appointments. They all rallied around him and, you know, and carried it home. And, and the other people on the other side, the, the clients really had no idea 
that this other agent had suffered the setback. So it's, it's really remarkable that you guys can do that, not just for you, but other people in the office too. Totally. That's why it's so, yeah, so so Lisa, I'm curious. You know, when you got back into the workforce, tell us about that and and what that experience was like. <laughs> so it was. I mean, I'm not going to lie; it was a struggle, right? Um, you know, coming back in, I before when I left, I joked that I was retired without really realizing that I'm not meant to be retired, um, and it was slow. Um, you know, the first couple of years that I was back, I couldn't be as present. I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the knowledge. But I also had some limitations just based upon the fact that my kids were still much younger. Um, And it's been a very slow evolution to get to the point that I'm at right now and being able to find the balance and um, and to realize all the mistakes that I've made along the way. Right. Um, I think we all make mistakes and it's just being able to admit them, understand where they are and pivot back so that we can get back on the right course and kind of keep moving forward. Sure. And so what years was it uh, that you uh, sort of re-entered the workforce and, and got into real estate? Uh, so my oldest daughter was born in February of 2004. I got my real estate license for the first time in December of 2004. And I didn't sell. I attempted to work, but it didn't work. Um, and I didn't sell any houses from 2004 to 2006 when my license expired. And I didn't renew it. I let it go. Um, And, you know, I I think that that's also one of the things that in this industry, we don't talk about enough. There's an 80% failure rate, right? Like 80% of agents get a license and they don't renew it in two years when it expires. Um, So I did not have any license and I didn't attempt to work from 2006 to 2010. Um, and I focused on being a mom at that point, which was what I needed to do for me and my kids and my family. Mm-hmm. Um, I got my license back in 2010. And from 2010 to 2014, I sold one or two houses a year, right? Paid mm-hmm. for dance lessons or whatever the kids wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and then in 2015, I decided to get a little bit more serious and I sold eight houses. It was like a great year. Uh, yeah. And then in 2016 is when I was, my kids were a little bit older. They were um, 10 and 12. And uh-huh. so that year I sold, I, I grounded and I sold 82 houses, but I had no balance. I don't suggest it. Um, <laughs> so you no sold 82 house. houses in 2016, did you say? Yeah. As an individual agent. Correct. Yeah. And I, halfway through, I realized I was kind of a liability for myself, my clients, my family. And I hired an assistant who started in July of 2016 and helped me get shit in order. So for the end yeah. of 2016. Huh. And so in, in 2016, when you sold 82 houses as, as an individual agent, um, you know, you were doing everything from the initial showings to the inspections to setting up lockboxes, putting up signs, writing contracts, you name it from A to Z, you were doing it yourself? Yep. I don't recommend it. And was it predominantly on the listing side or the buy side? Uh-uh. It was almost all on the buy side. Out of the 82 transactions, less than 20 were listings. More than 60 of them were buyers. So that's a lot. As you know, that's a lot of hustle. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, every, every buyer you're going to have to show them on average, I would think what 15, 20 houses, something like that. Maybe closer to 10, but it's still, yeah. 
still a lot. Yeah, it's a it's a lot of work. And your average price point in 2016 was was what? Three twenty five to three fifty. It's not high. No, but it's indicative of you know with the market that you're in. So it, it is right. what it is. Um, and and so, how did you make the the switch and, and recognize that you needed an assistant? Um, well, like I said, I, I realized I was a walking liability, right? I couldn't, I wasn't getting paid on time for half my transactions because my paperwork wasn't complete. And I was forgetting to do things that were just so basic because there was so much going on and there were so many balls in the air. At, at a certain point, I think we can all only handle so much at one time. And right. I also had hired a coach, which is how you and I met through the, you know, Tom Ferry coaching. And it was a lot of encouragement from my coach that I needed to take the financial risk. And I think that that was the the thing that stopped me from doing it. Um, it's tough to think about taking on a salary and paying somebody else and being responsible for their livelihood when you're not confident in your own skills. And that, you know, I kind of thought it was a fluke, right? I sold a lot of houses because I got lucky. Um, and when you it, say you got lucky, what, what made you think that you got lucky? Was there... I mean, you probably didn't have systems in place, but what were your lead sources in 2016 when you sold those 80 plus homes? Zillow was by far the biggest. Um, Zillow probably accounted for 60 to 70% of my business. Um, I was heavily into farming. So I had a geographic farm with direct mail and some Facebook ads, but in some open houses kind of spattered in there, but um it was very heavily online leads and no, my systems weren't set up. I, you know, had a CRM, but I didn't use it. Um, it, it it's nothing like what it was now. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're basically kind of just throwing some stuff against the wall. You had a farm here, you had uh, some Zillow leads there and all these things you were making the investment in yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that was one of the things, right? So it started with, you know, a $500 a month investment into Zillow. And early on, I knew that if I was going to spend any money, I was not going to waste it, right? Back then, $500 a month on a six-month contract was $3,000. And when that's been your entire profit for a year of real estate work up until that point, thinking about putting all of your profit into one thing, it's kind of risky, right? Yeah. Uh, so I knew if I was going to risk the entire profit that I had made the year before that I had to take it seriously and do the things. Um, but I think it, I, in my head, I was thinking I was getting lucky by just connecting with the right leads or having the right conversations. Scripting wasn't a thing for me at that point, right? Like I didn't realize that there is definitely, there's an art form to real estate and there's a science to real estate and there's a math to real estate, but I didn't know that. So in my head, it was all just, I was lucky and it could go away tomorrow. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people who, you know, sort of do a lot of business do get lucky and they don't realize the basics of it. And it all boils down to, you know, some, some super basic math. You know, the more people that you reach, the more people you take out, the more people you meet with, the more offers you make, the more deals you do. It's really as simple as that. You just have to have more conversations because the conversations are, are 
sort of like the rocket fuel that's going to enable you to, you know, get to your objective, whether your objective is Mars, Pluto, the moon, or just doing more deals, you need more rocket fuel. And how do you get there? You need more conversations. And what you're describing between the farm and the Zillow leads enabled you to have those conversations that are integral to our success. Absolutely. And then the next part of it is being able to reinvest it, right? So once you find something that works and that you're successful at, it's just a function of being able to scale it, which I think goes back to one of your first questions, which was how do you build a team, right? And you find the stuff that works and you just keep scaling it, do it again and again and again and again, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and keeps growing off of itself, yeah, absolutely. It kind of just snowballs, right? You figure out what works and you add more to that, you know, that source or what's working, you know, whether, you know, some people have success with, uh, you know, seminars, some people have success with events, some people have success with client appreciation parties. Um, you know, it's, it, it's really a question of what works for you and what works for you may not work for me or someone else, depending on, you know, what they're most natural. with. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting because, you know, you, you, you figured out what worked and then you ran with it, right? Yeah. And we still do. We, you know, what's funny, despite how big it's gotten, we still run the same place. No matter what it is, we're still doing the same things that we did in 2016 and 2017 today. We adapt some of it, right? Like we're altering the script slightly because of Corona. We're altering the script slightly here and there because of different changes in society or in the environment or whatever, but it's the same basic plays. And I bet you find the same thing in your business too. Yeah. It, it's just a question of figuring out what works and, and running with it. Right. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, you turned this corner in 2016, you were doing 82 deals, you got the assistant, then what? So in 2017, I started my first team and I say my first because I fucked it up. So sorry, I messed it up so royally that um, and we had a great year, right? 2017, my team sold 212 houses. That's not trivial for a first year of a team, but I woke up one morning. So hang on one second. I just want you to repeat that again in 2000. Yeah, 2017. So first year of operation. So you went from your daughter being born in 2014, 2004. Yeah. So you didn't sell any houses two, three years. You kind of came out of the business. You went back into the business. You kind of figured out some plays that worked in 2014, right? No, 2014, I sold like two houses. 2015, I sold eight. 2016, I sold 82. Got it. 2016, you sold 82. And then 2017, you started a team. So, and you sold 200 plus homes in your first year as a team. Right. Yep. So, so hang on one second. So how did you build the team? First, you had the assistant, then what? Uh, Then I recruited a bunch of agents to come join me. Um, And I recruited the wrong way. I recruited based upon leads and money um, without having enough of a base for my business and without having clarity on who I was as a leader or a business owner. Um, and that was a man, if I could redo 2017, it would have been completely different if I knew now, if I knew then what I knew now. Um, so what do you, what do you tell Lisa in 2017? You can time travel today 
in 2020, back to the beginning of 2017, when you decided I'm going to start to recruit agents, what do you tell Lisa in 2017? So I would have told myself two things. One is slow down and not like don't go as fast, but do things the right way, right? And I think that this is something that most of us who are very entrepreneurial struggle with, which is checking the box to make it just good enough and then moving on without making sure that it's really good. And if you want to have a world-class business, you've got to have a world-class foundation. And I did not. I absolutely did not in so many different ways. Um, And I think one of the things that a lot of team leaders make the mistake of, and I made it myself, is I was a really good real estate agent. I knew nothing about business, right? I didn't know how to run a P&L. I didn't know how to juggle profit and like versus expenses. I didn't know what it took in personality traits to be a leader. I just knew what it took to sell a lot of houses. Um, and I thought that those skill sets would transfer and that I could just have... I could teach other agents to be me, but my personality didn't calibrate to what it means to be a leader, right? And so a lot of what we talk about with why my culture is so powerful now and why it's one of the things that I'm most proud of, I, I wasn't that person in 2017. And I also, biggest mistake, wasn't sure of what the value was that I could bring as a leader or what my business could bring to agents. So, um, you know, we recruited based upon leads and money. And in order to convince people to join me, I made some really stupid financial decisions. Um, like giving giving inappropriate splits or what types of? Uh, yeah, 100%. It was all about, it was all about really bad splits. So, you know, there's a point at which you, when you don't understand what it's going to cost you to acquire a client and what it's going to cost you to get the deal to the closing table, when you don't understand those numbers, you can't make an intelligent decision on how to compensate an agent. I had agents on a 90% split. It's not, it doesn't work. It's not sustainable. Uh, And that was 90% of company dollar. Were you still at a company or you were working at a brokerage? We were at Keller Williams. So I was losing money because I, was stupid. And when I was making the arrangement, I thought that, you know, eventually it would just come back and it would pay for itself and it wasn't a big deal, but it really was. Right. And so I had made all these bad financial decisions in the recruiting process. Um, and I didn't have the ability to really track conversion rates and profitability off of our lead sources. So in 2017, the first year of the team, out of the 212 homes that the team sold, my personal production was over 100 of those units. Like I sold personally, but I lost over half a million dollars because I was actually paying the agents to close transactions. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, that. so that was your first. That was your first year in 2017. You were selling all these homes. You had all this incredible volume. You had what was on the surface tremendous success, but as you put it, your your foundation was terrible, and so you actually lost half a million dollars in doing over two hundred transactions. Right. Yeah. So you, so you would have been better off just kind of kicking ass with your assistant from two thousand seventeen or two thousand sixteen. Was it? I'm sorry. I'm getting my my yeah, numbers. If I had just redone what I did in two thousand sixteen, I would have made more money 
and, and I wouldn't have worked as hard. I wouldn't have had as much like heartache and I would have made more money. Wow. That's incredible. And so you, you got to the end of the year, you realize you just paid out half a million dollars that, you know, you didn't really have. So you invested this half a million dollars in, you know, mentoring these agents, giving them leads and, and winding up with a, a big loss. Uh, and so how did you realize that and what do you do to pivot and move forward? Well, I mean, I, I was realizing it kind of as we were getting halfway through the year when I was looking at it and saying like, I'm not earning the amount of pers- money personally that I should have been. Um, I made a hire, right? Because I also realized that um, I, look, I, I'm I'm a good person at heart, but I don't communicate very well. And that hasn't actually, I'm getting better. But back then, it was a really big struggle. Um, And I knew that if I wanted my company to be the company that it was in my head, I needed to make some changes. So I hired a sales manager to kind of take over some of that and take over some of the, I'm not warm and fuzzy. I'm not going to celebrate every win with you. I'm not going to slap you on the back and tell you a good job. I'm just going to tell you to go do it again, right? Because that's how I'm hired. Um, But sales... Sounds sounds very familiar. Yeah. And that you're kind of describing me. <laughs> I'm sure I'm, I'm like describing half the people who are watching this, right? Like when we're entrepreneurial, we just think in a little bit of a different way. Um, but that's not good as a business leader necessarily until you can fully learn to rein it in. And that takes time. Um, so I hired Jason. Things were kind of okay. And then in August, I'll never forget it. I woke up one morning in August and I had an email from one of my admins saying that she quit effective immediately drove to the office. And I'm like, Oh shit. Now I've got to be an admin and an agent and a team leader and everything else. What made her do that? What was that? What made your admin quit so abruptly? Do you think I was, if I'm a shitty team leader, I wasn't a very good boss. Right. So I mean, was there one straw that broke the camel's back? I don't think that there was one. I think that like, I, I go back to that. I communicate very directly. I don't necessarily wrap it in the softest delivery. There's no sugar with it, right? Um, I have very high expectations of myself and didn't really realize that not everybody can share that expectation level, right? And that I can't take the expectations of myself and put them on everybody else. It just isn't going to work. And so I don't blame her. I think I would have quit on myself too. That's the crazy part. Um, wow. But you would have quit on yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, you know, looking back on, so anyway, so I'm at the office and then I get an email from an agent, my first agent, not the first one that I hired, but the first one of that day sent me an email that she quit effective immediately as well. By two o'clock, I got a phone call that another one quit. I'm sorry. This is all in the same day. It's all in the same freaking day. It was horrible. Wow. So there was clearly one, there was, there was an issue that was leading up to this, that you were so sort of, uh, you were, you were numb to what was truly going on in terms of the dynamics within the team. Um, and if you had to look back on it, I, I know that you're not the best at, you know, leading at this point, but what was it at that point that you think led to your, you know, primary admin and two agents leaving in the same day? It's me. Right. And it's not just it's not just one part of me. Um, And that's the tough part that I think is 
it, it was so many things, right? Like it, it honestly, like I was feeling financial pressure because I knew that the company wasn't profitable. I knew that I had made so many mistakes. And I think sometimes when you get that far into that number of mistakes, it's very difficult to see the way out. Um, and I didn't know how to find my way out. Um, even with a coach, I, I think part of it is, I, I also think when it was going on, we all have our public image and our private image, right? And I think one of the biggest things that I dislike about this industry is that we all don't talk about this part of it enough, right? And I didn't see other people talking about this exact thing. And in my head, I'm the only person who's ever made these mistakes. And if I talk about them out loud, I'm admitting that I'm a complete failure. And that's the last thing any of us want to be, right, is a complete and utter failure, and so I knew that they were going on. I didn't see how to fix it. And it was, I couldn't bring myself to talk about it. And certainly none of us are going to post any of this kind of stuff on Facebook um, or Instagram or anywhere else. Um, and even within the circles that I had been kind of keeping at that point, there wasn't a ton of transparency about it. Um, and even to this day, I, I know that I share this, you know, in certain circles, and you, you and I have kind of discussed this in, in the past, is as an industry, we don't talk about this enough, right? And I think it makes it yeah. very difficult for all of us to, as business owners and leaders, to kind of be able to say, like, on the financial piece, I've made a mistake. So anyway, so there was this financial pressure because I know I'm losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's... The piece where I look at it and it's, again, another part that it's very difficult to talk about with your own shortcomings. Like, how do you admit that you're not great at communicating, right? Yeah. And in my head, even today, like I still make the same mistake sometimes. In my head, I, I know that I always mean really well or, or good. I never mean bad, right? I'm, I'm never coming. <laughs> so yeah, you, mean, you, you mean well. You always mean well. In your heart of hearts, you mean well. Sometimes you might not make the best decisions, but you know when, when you when you make these mistakes, it's important that you own up to them. You apologize for them if if an apology is warranted. Um, you know, for instance, if you just stub your toe, right? You, you know, you're not you're just going to carry on about your day and you know know where that you know curb is or the step is that you stubbed your toe on. But you know, if it involves something someone else. And there was something that you could have done differently than you, you know, acknowledge the mistake and, and how you learn from it, apologize, and, and we move on together. The sooner that we own up to our mistakes and we apologize is, I think, the, the, the greater credibility that we'll still be able to maintain and have going forward with our peers, uh, you know, that, that we're apologizing to. Um, and as long as we learn from them, right? I mean, you know, uh, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, kind of thing. Um, but you know, going forward, um, you know, you, you when did you realize you had to hire a sales manager? So it was probably so. Jason joined me in June of 2017. So this is Jason Posnick, right? Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. and. Um, I hired Jason because in so this this whole explosion of my business happened in August. But clearly, I think 
I knew it was happening in May and June, right? There were, there were noticeable cracks going on. Um, and my, I, I knew it was coming. I thought I could save it. And I thought that, um, hiring Jason would enable me to save it and fix it. Good thing that it didn't, right? Because I don't think I would have the business that I have now if if I hadn't gone through what I've gone through with building it. Yeah. So you learn from those mistakes and you basically kind of tore it down with Jason's help. And then you rebuilt a more solid foundation or a moat, if you will, around the business. And and you and Jason have sort of rebuilt Chinati Realty into uh, you know the, the stronger form of its current self. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and had a lot of fun along the way, right? Now yeah. we get to, you know, fix the mistakes and openly admit the mistakes that we make every day, right? There's uh, once a once a month I make a mistake and I'm like, why did I do that, right? And we fix it and pivot quickly. And um, as an as a whole organization, right? Every single person here, whether it's the agents or the staff, it's you know we're all kind of always adapting together and working together to find the best fit. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's remarkable. Now you've come to this place where you're actually in a stronger position uh, now in 2020 than you were at this point in 2019, which was, by all accounts, a pretty strong year. Am I right? Yep. Last year, we sold 492 homes. So, um, yeah, I certainly had a great year last year. We're about 20% ahead. I Last night I was sitting there and I was doing my probably fifth business plan for the year because I feel like every time something's happened so far this year, it's been throw it away and start over, right? Like Corona first hit and it was like, well, throw that business plan away and we've got to adapt to this new kind of thing, right? Yeah. And then then we went on total shutdown and we were non-essential and couldn't do anything so that slightly modified business plan had to be thrown away and we had to start with a whole new business plan and then we opened back up. So throw that away. Cause now it's not going to be as catastrophic and whatever. And now we're on the, the next iteration because the, the activity is not what I expected. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, we're, we're always bobbing and weaving in real estate and now today more than ever because of the, you know, COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, here in New York, uh, the governor just announced last end of last week that we can now congregate in uh, groups of 10 or fewer people. But we as real estate professionals can't do as little schedule photography or new listings or meet with prospective buyers and sellers. So it's a precarious line that we're walking because, you know, we're excited in that we see light at the end of the tunnel and yet we can't actually conduct our normal day to day activity. So it, it's definitely frustrating. I can appreciate that. Yeah, I I have major respect for those of you in New York City who are and other other very urban places who are dealing with the same thing. Um, and I give you major credit um, for continuing to do what you're doing and to your commitment and your passion for the industry to keep it going. You're doing, I yeah. envy you for that. Yeah, well, you know, you got to keep your eye on the prize and stay optimistic and know that this too shall pass and. Uh, so, you know, here we are continuing to bob and weave better than ever. Yes, it's going to be when it's all over. I We're going to wake up in January 2022 and it's going to be amazing when we can all just be back to old normal. I don't want new normal. I want old normal. 
Absolutely. With that, Lisa Chinati of the greater Boston suburbs. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lisa. Always appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me. You bet.